Good evening and welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. This is Brian, a very tired Brian in Buffalo, New York, U.S. of A. And with me as always... is Lauren from Swansea. How are you, Brian? I am exhausted because I know you know my big news. I do. Cleopatra has a baby brother now, little teeny tiny Billy Van. Yes, named after... House of Frankenstein, Billy Van. Aww. So good. He, he is so good. He's adorable. He's sweet. He's playful. And she wants absolutely nothing to do with him. That's because she's the boss lady cat. And she's like, why have you done this to me, father? She is. But actually, right now, they're in the same room. She's kind of like, I can't tell if she's looking at him like, I think I could learn to love you or you're going to make a great appetizer. Or, I hope I don't have to share my food with you. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so, but they slept in the same room last night. Was Sarah in that room there as well? Yes, Sarah was in that room as well. That's why, that's why. It could be. Uh, Cleo did get a little bit pissed when, when little Billy went for her uh, bowl of food. <sighs> yeah. But, you know, it, it's been okay. I, I did notice something, because, you know, I got Cleo, well, my my first cat, you know, Sergeant Pepper. I got Sarge when he was an adult, and I got Cleo when she was about nine months old. You know, Billy's only three months old. He's still a kitten, and I learned something that I never knew about kittens, but I actually had to look it up online, and guess what, Lauren? What? Kitten poop stinks. It does, yes. Like, worse than cat poop. Yes. It's bad. I... Accused Sarah of shitting the litter box. It smelled so bad. I came out and said, Sarah, did you shit in the litter box? Just to try to show Billy what to do. But no, she didn't. No, you don't You don't tend to have to show cats what to do. They they tend to come and already know what to do. He does, yeah. And, he knows, and, and it's stinky. But yeah, let's not talk about that, Lauren. I want to tell you about some of the feedback we got for last week's episode. Oh, yeah. Um, people love, uh, they want to know how your cold is because you sounded a little different during the interview. Did I? No, I'm fine. I didn't have a cold. No, when Jeremy does your voice. All right. Um, Jeremy will be going to London for the premiere of a certain movie. In the other feedback we got, people looked up Beta Boys, the Byron Brown show that I was talking about that is so wonderful. And, oh, guys, you got if you haven't watched it yet, go to YouTube, look up Beta Boys. There's only three episodes so far, but it's well worth watching. Oh, Sarah just walked in the room. Hello. And little Billy Van just rolled over, and Cleo just looked at it like, I'm going to eat you for dinner. Yep, that's my decision made. <laughs> But Lauren, get this. You know, last week we had a lot of fun and we, we had Jeremy and Byron and Han on and we got to talk Scare Package. And, and sometimes people forget that we're serious historians and we're a hard history show. Are we though? Are we really? Well, we are tonight because I managed to get right, Dr. Camilla Townsend of Rutgers University the world-leading authority on the Aztecs and the history of the Aztecs, author of the best-selling and prize-winning The Fifth Son, is going to be with us, Lauren. Can you believe it? I can't. 
I know. Can you? I that I'm such a nerd because when I sent an email to Dr. Townsend, I was like, "This is one of those emails that I'll send, and I'll get a response back saying, "Are you serious? Leave me alone." But no, I got. Wow, that sounds like a lot of fun. It. She's <laughs> coming on. You know me, and I know you. We're Are both we? total history nerds, and just to talk the Aztecs, the history of the Aztecs. Was such an authority. I don't think we've ever had an email which has been like, oh, leave us alone. No. Oh, yeah. Well, I've had people say they don't want to speak to that Lauren. I am. Oh, yeah. You know, she's brutal. She's mean. She she says horrible things. Now, everybody loved Lauren, and we did get more feedback for Lauren. Oh, goodness. We have gotten so many congratulatory emails. Not only about your master's degree, but about your job. People are so impressed that you are working uh, for the National Museum now. I know, right? And someone sent in a really good suggestion. Oh, goodness. Maybe we should get one of Lauren's bosses on to talk about the National Museum of Wales and some of the biggest historical events in, in the history of Wales. Um, I can. It, it, um, it depends on, um, like... Because I work in development, so um, I, I know all the projects are being funded at the moment. But whether we can speak about them publicly is, uh, um, I think we've got to go through communications first. But I can well, certainly... yeah, but we could talk about just general history of Wales. Yeah, um, yeah, we can do that. I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, um, there's lots of things about Wales I'd like to put to rest and stuff like that. But it would be really good. Like what? What do you want to put to rest about Wales, Lauren? Well, I saw this book the other day, and I don't know if it was fiction, because I just looked at it, rolled my eyes, and carried And the book was? What was the book about? I, I can't remember what it was called, because I just looked at it. It's about Henry VII, and about how the Tudor dynasty started in Pembrokeshire, but it didn't. It started in North Wales. They were part of Onglindura's family, and they were part of the family that dogged him into the English forces. And also, they they were they were livestock rustlers. Everybody everybody was like they were horse thieves. No, they were livestock rustlers. That there was there was yeah sheep were involved. There is a big difference. <laughs> there is a big difference because sheep was involved with the livestock rustling. Yeah, and livestock rustling is a little bit better than horse thievery. Um. Yeah. So, um, they were involved in that, and. Um, they also dobbed in Oh England due to the English forces. Um, yeah, so that was. And I was like, oh no, they started in Pembrokeshire. I was like, no way, they did not start in Pembrokeshire. They ended up in Pembrokeshire because um, Henry the Sixth's mother ended up marrying Owen Tudor. Owen Tudor, I shouldn't say Owen. And um, they ended up getting land in Pembrokeshire because it's the biggest county in Wales. And, um, well, because, you know, he had half-brothers with Tudor lineage, and that's it. But it's like they didn't start off in Pembrokeshire at all whatsoever. Henry the Sixth is kind of... And that was the Henry the Sixth? ...great-uncle, step-uncle, half-uncle of Henry the Eighth. Speaking of Henry the Eighth, did you know... Yes. When I got married to the widow next door, she'd been married seven times before, and everyone was a Henry. So you were Brian the First. So I'm Henry the Eighth. I am. Henry the Eighth. I am. 
Thank you, Herman's Hermits. You're... Sorry, I'm a big Pure Noon fan. Yeah, but now we're going to get sued. I didn't sing it. And I said, I love Peter, Peter Noon. I love you. I've seen you in concert at least a dozen times. So, yeah, don't sue us. I'd like to marry you. Okay. Other than that, Lauren. You would like to marry him, not me, you. He's a little old for me. Not too old, Peter. Don't sue him. He is going to sue you now. He will. You know, he may be old, but he looks a lot better than I do, so. Still going to sue you. Did you ever hear what, I don't know about it over in Wales, um, but on Sirius XM Radio, Peter Noon used to host a show about, you know, classic music and memories, and he would tell stories, and he was the best storyteller I ever heard. It was just so wonderful and soothing and relaxing. I, I wonder if they're available online somewhere. If so, I'm going to look it up, and Lauren, you should too. Just look up Peter Noon telling stories. Y- you'll love it. A- anybody who wants to hear just, because it's not just about the music business and music. It, you know, it was growing up in, in you know, post-war England and, you know, his father's factory jobs. And it's just a great, great storyteller. Should I stop kissing Peter Noon's butt now? Yeah, I think you better. But I do mean every word of it. It's fantastic. Also, one last thing I want to bring up before we go to our um, day in history. Yeah. Is I got a little in the mail this week. What did you get? Oh, it's, it's rectangular. It's a book. It's about... 350 pages long and it says advanced reader copy Egypt's golden couple how Akhenaten and Nefertiti became gods on earth that is exciting by Dr. John and Carlene Darnell uh, the wonderful vintage Egyptologist so I do have the advanced copy of the book it is not on the market yet but you can pre-order it now and I suggest everybody should because the first night I had it, 280 of those 350 pages were devoured. And not by the new kitten. I mean, I read them. You mean by the new kitten, don't you? Lauren, this book is phenomenal. The great thing is is that Colleen said she's going to come back on the show you know, after their latest excavation in Egypt, and we'll talk more about the book. And, wow, it's phenomenal. People go out and get this book. I think you and Colleen should do that. Do that show by yourself. Why? So you can do a bit of flirty flirting. (laughs) Are you you saying I ever flirty flirt? Um, Yeah, you do. Sort of like you with Jeremy? I do not. (laughs) I know, that's me too. Yeah, that's you. Did you, you listen to the show though from last week. How adorable that Sarah's got a crush on Han and he was talking to her. I know, it was so cute. Han is such a great guy. And Byron, Byron, great guy, and Jeremy, you know, he's Jeremy. Oh, <laughs> yes. Did the pillow come out to play? Of course the pillow came out to play. I think Byron and Han are a little jealous that they don't have pillows, but... Oh, you're going to get a pillow made of them now, aren't you? It's possible. Yeah. But what do you say uh, we go on to our... Uh... How do I do this? Yeah, today in history. Yep, sounds good. 
right, now I was torn between two different days. I think I'm going to go with uh, my first one, which was Today in History, July 26th, 1609. Thomas Harriet, the English mathematician, was the first person ever to draw a map of the moon while looking through a telescope. I see to me that that's amazing because you know, I remember being a kid in 1979 looking through a telescope at the moon and just being in awe. Now to think that all the way back in 1609 someone was drawing a map of it through a telescope. It's incredible. Oh, I love that. Uh, that just, we're gonna have to do another show about the cosmos soon, too. Yes, we will. All right, your turn, Laura. What you got for me? Um, well, my day in history is the 26th of July, 1497. Perkin Warbeck's army lands in Cork, and that was the pretender um, pretending to be Edward IV's son. So he's pretending to be one of the princes in the tower. Yeah, and why would you want to pretend to be one of the princes in the tower? Because then you could take the throne away from the person you feel... Is sitting on the throne that shouldn't be sitting on the throne. Or you could be thrown in the tower. Um, he was. He was thrown in the tower and he was, uh, he was. Yeah, who wants to be thrown in the tower? Yeah, that's right. Sarah just brought up a good point. Remember that woman who came forward and claimed she was Anastasia? Yes. She wasn't a scammer or anything trying to get attention or money. She just turned out to be nuts. Um, I don't think he could, I don't think he was nuts. I think he had been led to believe that he was who you know, he'd been basically people had groomed him to pretend to be this person. Oh, you think she really believed he was? Um, I don't think so. Um, it's very difficult to tell because I mean, after a while it all starts to get a bit messy. I don't ever want to pretend to be the prince in the tower, Lauren. Um, no, it's, it's, no. They, well, they'd be very dead by now anyway, regardless of whether. If I was ever going to pretend to be a prince, it would be the prince of Lake Minnetonka, the one and only Purple Rain Prince. Mm, I don't think you could pretend to be prince. I couldn't either. I'm about two feet taller and about 400 pounds heavier, and I'm alive. But that prince yeah. was pretty badass. He was. Oh, I love Prince. Prince was great. Brilliant musician. You know, I think he's criminally underrated as a musician. People just remember some of the pop hits, but man, he was a good musician too. He was indeed. All right, Lawrence, so what do you say we uh, fire up the magic interview box? Absolutely, we should. It's the magic interview box. Lauren, this is going to be so much fun. Dr. Dr. Camilla Townsend. I mean, Rutgers University, History of the Aztecs, and I'll probably get to talk about one time I got to go to the International Bowl uh, in Toronto and watch Rutgers play for the you know International Bowl Championship. I think I should go that route. Well, if she's a football fan, definitely. Yeah, well, there you go. All right, Lauren. I am going to let you flip the switch, and when we come back, we're going to learn everything you ever wanted to know about the Aztecs. Lauren, Lauren, you are in, and the audience is in for such a treat. This person 
I became aware of with a book that I read called The Annals of Native America. And it was just one of the most fascinating books I've ever read. And I said, I got to out more about this person. And, and then lo and behold, she writes a book that's like this monster bestseller that wins all these awards. And I'm like, oh yeah, everyone's jumping on my bandwagon because I like to think that I discovered Dr. Kimberly Thompson. And she, she's my own private favorite historian on the Asks. And it is so amazing to have you on the show today, Dr. Thompson. Plus, you're a Rutgers University professor. Go see Rutgers in the International Bowl when they played in Toronto, and it was wonderful. I'm doing great. Thank you very much. What a kind introduction. It's really quite touching. I'm telling you, it is just, people, you got to get these books. Because if you think you know anything about these, you really don't. And that's the main reason I wanted to have you on, because I could say I don't know about you, but but I do know about you because I read your books. There are more misunderstood people than the Aztecs? Well, I imagine that there are. I am no expert in other people who lived long ago or not so long ago. We go away from Eastern Europe and Western-descended peoples like Americans. The further we go in time or in space, I find, the more willing audience members or readers are to accept interpretations that are probably nonsense and that seem kind of suspicious when you stop and think about them. I just find that when we go way back into the ancient world, even in the West, even in Western Europe, or travel far, far off the beaten path geographically, and of course the Aztecs are both, uh, people become willing to suspend disbelief. People become more willing to that these other human beings maybe aren't so human after all. Where we make assumptions about them that we would never make about someone who lived, say, in the United States or in France three, four, or even five generations ago. So although I cannot say with certainty that there are lots of other deeply misunderstood peoples, I bet a lot of money that there are, given some of the nonsense that gets accepted, or apparent nonsense, right? Yeah, in that case, I suppose you're right. The Aztecs are rather unique in that sense. They have been held up, I would say, implicitly and explicitly, the worst of all human beings, being, really. The, they the rip beings into your chest with their bare hands and pull your hearts out animals. and eat them um, and for fun. Have been called savages, which is what people think of with the Aztecs, thank you, Mel Gibson. In terms of what people have been willing to believe about them, that, that they all, as an entire culture, uh, like pulling beating hearts out of other people's bodies, that they all believe would not rise again the next day if they did not do this, and other sorts of things that really are not borne out by the evidence. So... I think you might be right that the Aztec are probably the most extreme example of of a people living far away from us in time and place who um, have had questions asked on them that they have not been able to defend themselves against and that people have, in general, come to believe uh, when there's no evidence for it. Well, very little evidence. Well, come on, a little human sacrifice here and there. I mean, you know what? Society hasn't done that. Well, you're being, uh, as I used to say my kids, but um, you're also saying something quite serious. That is, they ask, ecologists actually think that probably a little bit of human sacrifice was practiced in ancient times on every continent, except Antarctica, of course. They can't absolutely prove it, but there are subtle indications of such. It is certainly true um, that in the Americas, all over, not just in the Aztec world, prisoners of war, captive warriors, 
were sometimes sacrificed at the end of battles. The losing side find their leader sacrificed, something like that. It was very widespread, although nobody was killing hundreds of the enemy that way. It was a way of ending the war, of making it very clear who had won. It was also a way of giving honor to your enemy. If he died without screaming, he was giving himself one last time, even though his side had lost. Under the Aztecs, at the end of their hundred-year reign, it took on new proportions. That is, the Aztec leaders did, in truth, I'll admit it, uh, begin to use this rather common aspect of warfare as a terror tactic. They began to sacrifice far greater numbers of people, and they began to do it in such a way as was calculated uh, to terrify, intimidate, and intimidate their enemies. In the Nahuatl language or Aztec language sources that I read, they even comment on this. There's one, one very specific quotation where uh, a man explained uh, the young people who uh, were taking down his words as he told the history, uh, that we used to kidnap people from the areas that we wanted to conquer, bring them to the capital city of Tenochtitlan, witness the worst of the ceremonies, because at that point they were sacrificing dozens at a time, and then let them go home um, so that they would reach to their people and tell them, let's not fight, let's just voluntarily join this empire, because if we fight, lose and we will probably lose they are going to sacrifice dozens of our young people so they what was the direct quote i think it was um i think the man said and the young man wrote this down in the 1500s in this way they were undone and decided not to unite against us so it was definitely a, a, a terror tactic more than a deeply held spiritual belief and at the same time as the war leaders and the statesmen were doing that the poets and the singers were saying, were singing about, writing about how much they hated death, how much they loved life, how beautiful life was. So even at the peak of their political dominance, when the when the ruling class of, of, of the Aztecs was behaving so badly, most of the Aztecs uh, were not like that and did not necessarily uh, want to live like that. So we have to keep in mind, they may have no more guilty of of being sort of terroristical types than Americans in general in the 1950s and 60s when our State Department and our CIA was running around Latin America brutalizing people. Um, but that doesn't mean that every person in the United States was equally sinister. So I, we, we should admit that the Aztecs did some, did some things, some bad things, and not write the S off in general or as a whole. I think we could, we could argue that, um, that we did similar with the Nuremberg trials as well, because the Nazi office, they weren't given the dignity of private executions. They would um, lined up on the gallows, men and women, and executed together. So it's still something that you see, well, yes, right up until the Second World War, we, you know, we have the West sacrificing um, their prisoners of war. You know, we could say justifiably, but, you know, could there have been a different sentence or something like, you know, because we consider ourselves to be so much more refined and um, advanced. But yet, when it comes to it, we still have that same mentality where we punish our en enemy with the most extreme punishment that we can give, which is the loss of life. It, they, they, the Aztecs certainly do not have a monopoly on state violence. That's for sure. Right. No, I mean, and you look uh, of Vlad Tepish was doing the same thing by keeping the people on, on, the, on the sticks that the, you know, other armies would see that, that the Romans did the same thing. Um, the European settlers did it to the Native Americans in America. 
it just it actually shows how advanced the Aztecs were as a political mindset at the time. Yeah, no, when I read, they wrote for themselves, you know, not when they were just answering questions that the Spaniards put to them. Those indigenous look a little bit simple sometimes, but when you read what they wrote for themselves, for their own posterity, that they never expect Europeans to read, it's it's quite extraordinary how complex their political calculations were. Um, it, it really is very important. They're also in, I, you know, this is a conclusion I came to reading your work, and that continuing on and looking into more that they were as advanced artistically agriculturally and certainly architecturally as any other civilization in the world at the time yes although i do think that the reason that they lost is that their technology could not match that of renaissance europe and i think and I'm, I agree with other scholars in this. This isn't just my personal fantasy, sort of, or my personal theory. Um, I think this was because they had had farming. They were farming corn and beans, as you obviously know, potatoes in South America. They had had farming, but not nearly as long, only perhaps as much as 3,000 years and probably more like 2,000 years, where in the old world, uh, when you consider ancient Mesopotamia, Farming had really been going on for about 10,000 years, and that does make a big difference. The, the more millennia people are sedentary and not, not moving around as hunter-gatherers, the more time they have um, to develop a whole panoply of different kinds of technology, writing, calendars, etc. Uh, the more people they have, because agriculture supports a larger population, and the more microbes uh, they develop immunities too, because as we all know now, we get our new microbes, our brand new viruses, etc., come from passage from animals to people. So, uh, it seems to me that on one hand, they ha- they have the Aztecs and the Incas, any of the Native Americans in in, in the New World who had been set for a long time, they have extremely impressive architecture, math, writing, poetry, etc. But I would say it's more akin to the ancient Sumerians, perhaps the ancient Romans and the ancient Greeks, let's say to um, Renaissance Europe. Had the Aztecs and the Incas come face to face in a big fight with the Mesopotamians, probably even the, I think they could have held their own or even won sometimes. But when you pitted them against the population, the weaponry, the ships, the shipping, the barrel, barrel-making establishments that could therefore transport large amounts of food, cetera, um, the compasses, all the things that had come from millennia of sedentary. When you pit them against all of that, I think they had to lose. And I say that having someone who knows their sources well, they fought so hard. They fought so brilliantly. They used everything at their disposal. There was nothing simple about their response. Um, but they could not win. The men who lived through it actually commented on that in their writings, that they felt like a clever mouse fighting a cat, even a stupid cat. It wasn't that they were giving the cat more credit for being smart. They were giving the cat credit for being big and had claws. <laughs> so uh, they, they even at that time recognized that there was a technological advantage that the world had. What they couldn't answer was why. Only now we answer that it seems to have had to do with how much earlier, many millennia earlier, farming, full-time farming started in the old world. Um, so I'm on board with you with that caveat. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but I'll tell you now, the Aztecs had popcorn. They, they had popcorn, yes, and chocolate. And chocolate. And, <laughs> and any culture popcorn and chocolate, I'm, I'm on their side. 
Oh, you're on their side. Yeah, me too. Popcorn. <laughs> what about chocolate-covered popcorn? Uh, you know, they might have, Lauren. I'm not sure. Their book, this is not in the sources that I read, but the, I mean, I have read it, but it's not what I specialize in. The Florentinics, it's called. Oh, this was written with the Friars and answering questions that the Friars asked. But sometimes they ask good questions. Sometimes they're stupid questions, but some good ones. And, um, <laughs> and one of their like questions me. was, what what did the high society used to eat? And you get pages and pages of these extraordinary concoctions. Um, so I don't remember seeing chocolate-covered popcorn, but it's possible. I'll have to go back and look. <laughs> and if they could mix peanut butter in with the chocolate, then good. Th- right, right. that changes everything. They didn't History's, have- history changed sugar but they had honey a rose pulp and they took honey and rose pulp and things like that and added it to the hot chocolate that they mixed with butter because they didn't have cow milk um, and they could make a, a pretty good drink let's just put it that way lauren now i want hot chocolate <laughs> and it's like 150 degrees here i don't think probably I not yeah i think it's worse where you are but it's not cool here either <laughs> no you know and, and that reminds me I wanted to ask, how does a nice girl from New York, because you're a New Yorker like me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you become, and and I'll say it because you won't say it because you're far too humble, so I'll say it. How did you become the world's leading authority on the history of the Aztecs? But I grew up in New York City like you, and I used to wander the halls of the High Foundation, which it now is, uh, that collection has been moved to D.C. and is in the Smithsonian. But the greatest Native American museum in the world used to be in New York. And I think it did inspire me. Still, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was actually studying, did study comparative economic history and got a job um, <laughs> at a college in the United States doing that. Um, and then took a summer course on the Aztec language, Nahuatl because I was writing a book about Malinche, the, the indigenous woman who uh, translated for Hernando Cortez, and I wanted to have been exposed to her language. And I found out that I was good at it. I found out how many sources uh, the, the Aztecs used using their language in the 1500s. Um, and so I was hooked, and I've been I'm studying almost entirely that since the late 1990s. It took a while, but now I've gotten pretty good at reading. Uh, I'm not good at speaking modern Nahuatl, not by long shot. Um, it's very different from classical Nahuatl, and I have never lived, even for a week, in a situation where I had to speak every day. Um, but I've gotten pretty good with the reading, uh, well, and that has helped immensely. I'll tell you, just to draw a parallel, how much the world is alike over. The fact that there's modern Nahuatl, of a language of a culture that was wiped out by the Spaniards, essentially. And Lauren, who is from Swansea, Wales, and still speaks Welsh. Yet that language was pretty much crushed by English. It's just well, that's a complicated story, though. It is, it's but I mean, it shows the parallels. The same with Welsh, though. With Welsh, it was decided that um, you didn't need Welsh. That if you spoke Welsh entirely, you would just you would just end up in a coal mine. And parents worked together with the school board, and it was the decision had to be made by the parents of the school ultimately and that and and that's when the language changed to english for education but welsh still say it stayed the language of play and that's how it survived whereas other celtic languages such as such as scottish and to some extent irish the irish celtic language um have have been eradicated i mean scottish the scottish language um was pretty much wiped out purposely by the english and they attacked us more savage, savagely than they did Welsh. So it's kind of different for us in Wales. 
we we kind of played it clever <laughs> in Spanish. You know, it, it seems like it has worked out quite differently there. But although I guess one could argue something a little bit's happened in Mexico in that the Spaniards really tried um, were interested in having Spanish become the dominant language, and, and it did. But indigenous people were allowed to keep speaking their own language. And during the colonial era, even in courts, um, after independence from Spain, ironically, uh, the indigenous language suffered more because the, the newly independent government was not interested in anything other than sort of equal citizenship, everyone speaks Spanish, etc. Um, but still, today, there are over a million speakers of Nahuatl. Sadly, though, it's diminishing. I think partly for the same reasons you described, Lauren, that is, more and more people, young people especially, spend their time on the internet and they're thinking, look, if I want to make something in my life, I want to make some money, I need to be speaking Spanish. And if I'm going to be studying another language, it's not going to be grandfather's Nahuatl language, it's going to be English. So, unfortunately, we used to have... Um, I remember in a day when people would cite the number 2 million. There were 2 million Nahuatl speakers. And now we kind of have to admit it's more like a million. So I'm afraid that in another generation or two, even the body of speakers may be threatened. We, we may find it Nahuatl on the endangered language list. But so far, not at all. That's very sad. Not only from a historical standpoint that it's a portal to another time, but I've seen some of your lectures where you've, read some of the things in the native language and it's a beautiful sing language you know every now and again lauren will speak welsh on the show and i'm just like mesmerized by how beautiful a language it is and it's the same um when i hear you speaking the native language it's just gorgeous it's very beautiful right right um, there's a, a at least in the states that this may not be this may not be an old stereotype that native american languages are guttural and simple um, I think the settlers used to say, you know, mean, cruel things based on a zero knowledge. Um, and in fact, indigenous languages, uh, obviously, they're equally complex as any other language, but also in general, and certainly in the case of Nahuatl, very beautiful. Um, and not a lot. Of, there are glottal stops, but it's not, by no means a language that is mostly glottal stops. So it does not sound like, like they have tried to, to imply in the past. Yep, so we get the same about Welsh because we have, you know, we have and 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 so they do say the same things about Welsh as well. Oh, do they? Yeah. So it's 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 kind of it's kind of nice to hear that other languages are getting the same disparaging remarks. Disparaging remarks, right? You seem to think, oh, it's just that they're singling out Welsh, but it was the same in Wales. Well, with the act of unification. of the late 1530s, we, we lost the um, ability to use Welsh in courts because the, the, a lot of the landowners became English because Henry VIII was giving grants of land um, in Wales to people and, um, and and they couldn't understand Welsh when they took a tenant to court or anything, so they did change it over to English. So it, it, it's... It, it's, it's it's kind of it's kind of strange to hear a parallel so far away in another in another part of the world. Because you did, uh, I remember uh, when, uh, in the last year of primary school, a history unit that year was the Aztecs, and I was mesmerised by how beautiful the cult- the culture was and everything. And it's just it's just fascinating. It's lovely they do that over there in primary school. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, we spent a lot of time making um, fun of the Spanish though, because they ignored. <laughs> 
<laughs> they ignored the chocolates. That was quite funny to us when we were children, that they ignored the chocolate. Maybe a victim or not a victim, a, a, a scapegoat, I guess, somebody in the, in the, a bad guy in the narrative that is taught to children. Some, someone's got to be sacrificed. It was the Spanish. <laughs> and, you know, it, the other parallel is it was roughly the same time period that this happened. No, it's funny. I was just thinking about that. In one of the histories, we're complaining about about the English uh, of the 1530s, I think because they're Spanish friar teachers, the ones who had taught them the role in which they had now come home to write their own histories, had probably complained about Henry VIII killing uh, or not treating Catherine of Aragon very well and then killing his other wife. And they were complaining about what the Protestants were doing in Geneva. And I remember um, one of these... Native historians whose own father probably had multiple wives, and certainly his grandfather did, saying sort of tisk tisk, this Henry VIII had too many wives. Right? So you knew that his Spanish friar teacher had. I mean, how else would he possibly have known what you know what was going across the sea and what Henry VIII had been up to? But it is strange to think that right that this Aztec son, he, he, this was the 1530s and 40s, so uh, he, he himself had not been raised Aztec, but had been raised in the Spanish world, but his parents were Aztec. Think of him sort of hearing the news about Henry VIII's court. I'm sure they told him nothing about what was happening to the Welsh, um, but, but at least he was hearing the big international headlines. Uh, yes, they would have, um, because Catherine of Aragon was, as you know, the, the aunt of the Holy Roman Emperor, who would have been is their leader in the end so right, right yeah right. so it, it would make sense that they would hear that because the english would were um right until the the pretty much apart from a small gap in mary's reign would have been the enemies of spain right, or, right. yeah so it's quite interesting it's quite yeah, funny yeah. as well yeah. these these Nahua boys thought you were villains <laughs> okay <laughs> thought the english were villains too right that's true we we held Henry the Seventh right. because we thought it would be different, and it ended up so much worse. So we apologize. <laughs> you know, Lauren just—I don't know if she did it on purpose because she does tend to lead me. Because Lauren is very, very smart and knows how to manipulate my thoughts. The Spanish coming in were very Catholic, and how did that affect? Because the Aztecs were not Catholic. Right. You know, they were funny, very in, in the middle of the 20th century, I would have given it, our scholars talked about the spiritual conquest that was in a book of that title, and everyone loved it. And the idea was that indigenous had just been overwhelmed people, by the power though, I mean, of Christianity and had lost their culture and their religious beliefs immediately because Christianity was so impressive. Um, but they were these the scholars were getting this from the accounts of Spanish friars who would go to a village and, say, baptize you know, 800 people by sprinkling some water over the whole group. And then say, now we have 800 more Christians. When modern scholars in the late 20th century started to think about this, they realized, well, that doesn't tell us anything about what the indigenous people were actually thinking when this would show up and sprinkle water. So, indeed, when we look at what they wrote about this among themselves, not when they were in Spanish fires, but just among themselves, which are the sources that I'm interested in, some of them comment on how they had had no idea what was going on at the time. Some of them were even quite funny about it. One talked about a friar who was giving them a sermon trying to convey the notion of hell and he did this by pointing up sky and saying birds and then pointing down at the ground and saying snakes toad i mean this is all in Nahuatl. i'm sort of roughly translating and condensing um and in later years that this writer this is Nahuatl historian had come to understand that 
the European hell, besides being a pit of fire, was supposed to have a lot of snakes and toads in it, that these were symbols of the devil. Uh, but at the time, he just thought this was ridiculous. And they were told they had to go every seventh day. Um, he said, we didn't know that it was Sunday. We just knew it had to go every seventh day. And we would see mass. They didn't say hear mass. We would see, and then they used the Spanish word misa for mass. And they would watch these guys make these wild and crazy um, gestures. Uh, and he said, we had no idea what was going on, and nor could they possibly give a damn. They did not care. Okay? Um, so th- I think we have to assume that for the first generation, maybe even longer to some extent, uh, the indigenous people were nodding and smiling at these Spanish friars and priests who wanted to make a point, but they weren't really internalizing anything. Mm-hmm. Eventually, of course, they did become Christian, and I think they did that because they were used to adding to the pantheon. You know, they, they, they were a polytheistic society. They had probably very little difficulty adding another god or saint to their pantheon. And it worked because Mexico is so overwhelmingly Catholic to this day. Yes, absolutely. Generation by generation, the influence did permeate, and there's no question that they are overwhelmingly Catholic today. Although even today, if you go out into the remote villages where indigenous languages are spoken, be it Nahuatl or Mayan, um, you will see the ceremonies, the Catholic processions have a distinctly indigenous slant. Some of the images, colors, dances that appear um, date from Bifanquist and do not come from anything that a Spanish priest would have taught them. But still, they are Catholic processions in honor of the Christian God, etc. So yes, they are completely Catholic by now. It worked, as you said, gradually. Right. It, it, well, it depends on your point of view. For them, it worked. Right, right. I'd really like you to point out, because uh, not to scholars, but to like most people, they can't distinguish the difference between the Mayans, the Aztecs, and the Incas. Why? Yeah, no, it is interesting how the Aztecs, know, me, Mayans, like, Incas yeah, just all really run together in American minds. You know, they're very different cultures. Why Not in so Latin America. They're very proud of their most major indigenous civilization. But up here, I will say that all Native Americans who, who, who used to live or still live of the Rio Grande are all lumped together. Um, and I find it very frustrating. I, I'm sure many of them do, too. Because uh, the Incas, for instance, could not have been more different. I mean, not only were they Indian, you know, mountain peoples, but... The Incas who conquered such a large empire worked very hard to incorporate um, the people that they conquered, much the way the Romans did. Uh, You know, an ordinary boy from what is today Germany could rise up in the Roman army. um, And likewise, the Incas had made that possible. Whereas, as one scholar said about the Aztecs, this was no Rome. That was an Australian woman, Inga Clendinen, right? And it was no Rome. Uh, They had no interest in incorporating other peoples. They just wanted them to pay tribute. You give us the payment every year, we leave you alone. You don't give us the payment, we'll come and kill you. I mean, by the end of their, their century, they were powerful enough <laughs> to do that. Um, you could not, if you were from another city-state, you could not move to the capital of Tenochtitlan and go to their schools and rise up with an Aztec army. It just it wasn't like that. So they were completely different from the from the Incas, and I, I wish people understood that. I, to me, the main difference I see, I mean, other than different regions, different cultures, the Aztecs seem to have a better understanding of metallurging, uh, and so, I don't want to say a higher technology, uh, but maybe for lack well, of a better they had been farming in Mesoamerica technology. a little bit longer than they had been in the Andes, so you may be onto something. It is certainly true that Mesoamerican pyramids, um, causeways, water engineering, was more impressive than than 
the Incas had than the architecture or the water engineering, the causeways that the Incas had. On the other hand, the Incas could build and did build fortresses out of huge stones without, they would move these huge stones without a wheel, bring them together and, and wear them down or sort of carve the stones in certain ways so that two huge stones would fit together so tightly that they couldn't stick a piece of paper between them. And, and they were um, arranged such that even in an earthquake, they wouldn't fall apart. So that the Inca highway and some of these Inca fortresses are still there today. Um, and that is something that I don't know anyone else on earth could do. And they also had, the Incas had this extremely unusual writing system, the quipus, which was considered various knotted strings. They had a place value system that in knots and the different colored strings and different things. Nobody else thought of writing in knots and strings like that. So, so they had their own genius. Um, but it is true that if we're looking at pyramids, causeways, bridges, things like that, well, huh, caught my Inca bridges, but mountains were rope uh, suspension bridges. They weren't stone bridges, they, the Aztecs sometimes built, but these rope suspension bridges that they hung between mountain peaks were pretty impressive. Um, so the Incas could figure out a great deal as well. We're something else as well. I'm sorry, I gotta ask. How, how do you feel about all these ancient alien shows that claim these pyramids were built by uh, Martians? It me nuts because they don't mean it this way, but it is a form of racism. I, I mean, I gotta, the idea that ask. it must have been ours, it's really ludicrous, very insulting, and completely inaccurate, if anyone is wondering. We have every evidence of all of these societies being, is sort of coming, arising in situ. You know, they were wander, hunter-gathered throughout the Americas, set themselves up all over places where they began to farm, little by little, grew these extraordinarily complex civilizations. There is no evidence that it was outsiders, whatever these silly TV shows may tell you. <laughs> so, you're exactly right. They're looking for sort of places where people of color's extraordinary achievements can be attributed to Martians. Um, and it's it's really quite dreadful. I have to ask a question now because my girlfriend made me. I would ask you. Go for it. The Aztec death whistle. Right. We don't really know much about it. They archaeologists have found this whistle, but it's modern peoples who say that it's a death whistle. That is, we we do not have any evidence that they would blow that instrument that has been found when they're about to sacrifice people. That that has the ring to me of something that was probably um, made up during the era of hating on Aztecs. Okay. Um, the only times in the sources that they wrote for each other for themselves, where they talk about instruments, uh, they mention the conch shell, not that whistle, and they talk about it as being a call to the people, a call to prayer, a call to gathering, a call to meetings, a call to evenings when they would have history tellings. And they thought of it as very powerful. Um, in fact, they named the Spanish arquebuses, Spanish uh, muskets, um, what did they call them? Fire conch shells, meaning sort of this powerful sound uh, combined with air. So they, they thought that their instruments, which were mostly whistles and drums, uh, were powerful and beautiful. And in the song lyrics that we have, there are little notations, uh, sort of notes to the drummer telling them what to do. And they talk about it as a very energizing and, and beautiful sound. Um, so there's no reference anywhere in all these things that they wrote. And they do talk about sacrifice. 
there's no reference to um, a, a, a will being blown in association with sacrifice. I would bet, I do bet a lot of money that that's a modern myth, that what that whistle was used for was to blow at the time of the, at the moment of sacrifice. Um, but we can't be sure. We can't be sure. Right? It, it's terrifying. Yes. 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 Yeah, to hear the sound that comes out of it. Uh, I will not put it on this up, but if anybody wants to go search, you could find on the internet the sound of the Aztec death whistle. It is terrifying. Right. It, I, yeah, I, I, she's all into that, and I'm like, it doesn't seem... It, there's no proof amongst the Nahuatl writings that that's what they used it for. Okay. I think it may have had more to do with artistic production. So, for instance, in a lot of the poems and songs, they associate that horrible oh, high squealing noise with the sound that an animal or a jaguar or an ocelot would make. And they do they did talk about it as a, a bad sign that your own death or your child's death might be imminent. Like if you're out in the wild and you hear a panther scream, this is very bad because it might be an omen and that that someone in your family is going to die. And in these poems, they do talk about the, the sort of the cry or the scream is hard to translate, both of the eagle and of these wild cats. So my guess would be that that instrument was created as to tell these these frightening stories and, and to, con- uh, to convey the power of these, these poems and songs. Um, the way they talk about sacrifice ceremonies uh, is quite different, and I think that there was uh, much music going on uh, during that time. But as I said, we are theorizing. We don't know, though. Yeah, we'll, we'll never know, but I, I kind of, I, I think I'm going to take your word for more so than <laughs> a lot of the other things. They built some pyramids that are just Gorgeous, and I—I I don't even like to call them pyramids because when the you say people... the word pyramid, everyone is you know just just Giza. They picture that perfect triangle in Egypt. These symbols that the Aztecs were just gorgeous. I mean, they're gorgeous, but were they as intricate on the interior or just the exterior? Huge pyramids. They were putting all their sort of architectural energy, if you will, into the vertical rise, and it was all about having the uh, political prisoners, as they were in effect walk to the top and then the ceremony was done at, at the top um so very little had to be accomplished inside so they were they were not interested in having large hollow spaces that might then collapse the most impressive uh, pyramid structures in uh, in mesoamerica that survive are actually in teotihuacan and that culture flourished before the aztecs even rose to power so the mesoamericans had been building beautiful and impressive pyramids long before even the the Aztecs showed up. The Aztecs actually wandered into Mesoamerica from the north, from the American Southwest, what is today the American Southwest, we believe. Um, so they were rather newcomers. These older civilizations were the ones that taught them how to build these gorgeous, these gorgeous pyramids. And tragically, I've actually stories that there are corporations that are trying to buy these from really? the government to level them to use the stone in roadways because it's cheaper and better road materials. Well, I know Mexico never let that happen to Teotihuacan. I wonder if they have let it happen to some of the smaller sites, though. It's possible. I don't know. They are very, on the other hand, it seems unlikely. They're very proud of, of their ancient indigenous past. Um, and the INA, the Instituto Nacional de Antropología, does take an active role. So let us hope that those corporations are in for a big surprise and they're not going to get their way. See, that's another difference. They are so proud of their heritage. And they really, they go out of their way to promote the culture and the history 
of their indigenous peoples, which is something the United States does not do. Um, like I said, I'm from Western New York, I'm from the, the Buffalo area, which was all it's really native. You know, it's really Kanawanda, true. In our school systems, the only thing you nothing. ever get is in grade school, school systems, a little bit of talk, you know, talk about around it. Thanksgiving about, you know, Indians I, and pills. And then I suppose kids are sometimes taken to some local mom and pop museum or site that has something to do with, with the, the local people, but very little. I mean, just you're, you offer a good example. I mean, in the Buffalo region, you had the whole Iroquoian Confederacy, one of the most impressive indigenous parties in North America, and it isn't taught much in upstate New York. Or here where I live, uh, the Lenape people uh, lived. They now live in Oklahoma because they were forced to leave. And the vast majority of New Jerseyans do not even know that the Lenape descendants are still alive and are living in Oklahoma, uh, that they were forced to exit. Um, so it, it is very sad how little is taught American school children. And you're right, in Mexico they do better, although Mexican friends have hastened to add that it's really the elite, hoity-toity, politically correct private schools that mostly do that, and that the, the public schools and the little districts are sort of so busy just trying to teach the three R's that even they barely touch in any serious way on it. But people are proud of it. Your point, in effect, still holds. Everybody at the name of the local pyramid, so to speak, and the name of the indigenous tribes that used to live there. And certainly when, in, when there are people who still live there, as much of Mexico and much of Guatemala, um, people know that. Uh, so it, it, they, they do do a job down there, I would argue. Um, perhaps not as good as they should, but they do a better job than we do. Let's put it that and way. And up there. Um, you know, right over the border is Canada, 10 minutes away from me. And in Canada, they do teach about the indigenous people and they learn about their history. Right, right. So right above us and right below us, they're all about here. We're just like, yeah, and we're yeah. like a dog in a vacuum cleaner. If we don't look at it, it's not there. It's not there, right. There really is a sense, you know, you, you mention it for 10 minutes in grade school and that's really all there is to know. There's, there, there's nothing to see here is the, is the general idea, which is sad. Actually, what I'm working on right now is a book about Lenape stories, uh, that the Lenape, once they'd been displaced to Oklahoma, but while they still had their language, um, wrote down. And very, very, very little has been them. People think that they're sort of nothing like the old Lenape religion, but these religious stories were written. So far more needs to be done um, in terms of studying Native American history and culture here in North America. It's happening more and more as more and more Native American people themselves get PhDs and push for this to happen. But we need, we do need more. But I mean, if you ask the common person, they're not going to know what the Lenape or, or, you know, an even bigger example, the Lakota. They're not going to know them. Right. They're never even going to have heard of it. I would say people in the upper Midwest have heard of the Lakota, but you ask a typical New Jersey who are the Lakota. You're right. I think they won't know. And that's terrible. Yeah. What What an excellent point you made. Yeah. Or you ask your typical little Californian kid who were the Iroquois. I'm not sure they would know. That it, That's pretty horrific when you stop and think. Yeah. Right. That's right. Unless right. they've seen a man called horse, then they'll remember the bones going through the chest right. and they'll think that's right. all it was. But like, you know, we all know the S rip into your chest and pull your beating heart that's out. That's who they were. Hold it up right. to the that's sun. The idea. That's, right. yeah, that's it. That was the typical day. You know, something that I found so fascinating that I hadn't realized was that after the Spanish conquest, the, the, the Spanish monk started reading the history. They really do incorporate uh, a lot of the oh, actual yeah. traditions. I mean, they, they, they whitewash some of it, they raise some of it, but they do talk about 
the actual culture and heritage more so than you see a lot of con- concert yeah, you know, people. You raise a good point. Uh, my students are always surprised it's to hear this. Like the it's actually thanks to the friars that we have, have as much as we have. They were very, as you say, interested, and they taught the indigenous, and I do mean boys, um, the Roman alphabet that they then used for their own purposes. That is, write down their own histories away from the. The, their Spanish teachers without their Jews even knowing about it. Whereas if follow the English clears, I guess I should say, sorry, Lauren, the British colonizers to North America, almost none of them um, interacted much at all uh, with the Native Americans. There were a few uh, missionaries who were a little bit interested in their language. Roger Williams is a famous example in today's Rhode Island, um, but not many. Uh, so we, you're absolutely right, Brian. We cannot turn to a bunch of books written by English missionaries writing with fascination about the Native Americans and leaving for us dictionaries and all sorts of things, as the Spaniards did. Even the Jesuits up in Canada did better uh, than, than the, the English uh, or the British missionaries. The, the, the French Jesuits actually wrote quite a bit. They weren't in awe the way the Spanish friars were, um, but they did write long reports, very detailed reports, send them home back to France. So I'm afraid that the the colonizers in the future United States kind of fell down on the job and didn't leave us the information about Native Americans that others did. They just weren't as interested. It's amazing. Oh. And in case you're wondering, this is little Billy, uh, Billy Van. He's, He's a little three key. months old. He's been here for three days. I have kid envy. To my adult female cat, Cleopatra, <laughs> who really wants nothing to do with him right now. So he just came to me for support. He's just a baby. Oh, hi, Cleo. I love that name, Cleopatra. You look beautiful. You look like a Cleopatra. <laughs> but she um, hates her new little brother. Lauren, I got I, I got to go to you now me, uh, because you know I said we'd only be on an hour, if and I'll Spanish go to the rapid fire question soon. But I got to let Lauren them, come in. What do you got? What do you think would have been in the future of the Aztecs? Would we have seen what difference would that be to Mexico? and South America? I think that's a great question. I mean, there are scholars who would argue that it was sort of a coincidence that the Spaniards won and that everything would have been completely different. I don't really think so. I mean, as I said, I, I do think that given the old world's sort of at least 5,000-year head start in agriculture and thus in sedentary life, um, that they were going to win eventually. My, my guess would be that if the Spanish had messed it up, it, that is, failed to conquer, so this is speaking now this moment from their point of view, that that would have moved in uh, the French, or if, if things had been really chaotic, that would have given the English time to get the Brits, time to get their act together, and there might have been um, more activity on the part of, of the British than there was in you know in the southern climes. I don't really see it as having been possible for the Aztecs to win. Um, I wish that were the case, but I fear that if we say that they could have won, and the implication is almost that they should have. Then we are implicitly opening the question, well, why didn't they? And when you look at the records of the war that they wrote afterwards, they couldn't have fought any harder than they did. They tried so hard. They did everything possible. They even tried to learn to use the muskets, the cannons, They, they because they didn't have injuries producing iron, producing, you know, um, the... The, the, the not the bullets, but the cannonballs, et cetera, that they needed. They didn't have gunpowder. So they ended up sinking all of that in lakes so that at least Spaniards couldn't get at it. They did everything possible. Um, but I don't think they could have won. So I think the biggest change or the biggest difference that might have been seen on Earth would have been that Spain would have been a lot less powerful 
in America, but that some Indian country, or, I mean, it could have been Asian too, but they had decided not to. That is, the Chinese had sent people out um, a couple centuries earlier and had concluded it wasn't worth their time. It didn't inherently have to be a European, but just someone from the old world who had been farming for all those millennia and they had the power um, to conquer people who hadn't. Maybe that's not the answer you wanted. Um, some scholars no. would say it could could have gone differently and then I'll be ruled by Native Americans, but I, I, I don't think so. I think because at that time, um, England and Britain were so concerned with the Mac issues and trying to stop and negotiate oh, on, the change please. of religion um, in Europe, because that was the whole obsession pretty much of the 16th century for us would be religion. I don't think we would have even tried. We didn't seem to be very adventurous during that period later when we decided we needed an empire. And as you said, under, under the head is when it's sort of the first time that they could even begin to think about extending outward. And it was really only under Elizabeth that there was yeah. that empire was at all feasible uh, politically in terms of the, the degree of power that they held. Um, so I think it might have given had the Spanish Portuguese not gotten back together. I think the indigenous peoples might have had a reprieve for a while uh, before the Brits got their act together. Do you think that the the Aztecs, in a sense, doomed themselves by by putting their um their 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 empire on an island? You know, I don't, Brian. I actually think that was part of their power. That island, um, it, there was a Mediterranean effect in the ancient world. I mean, not on the same scale, but that island was easily accessible to, you know, literally hundreds of other indigenous villages because people from all around the shores of this huge lake, I mean, it filled the Valley of Mexico, um, what we now think of as the Valley of Mexico. So because they were on this island, they were equidistant from dozens and dozens of other polities of other city-states, and that made them rich. They established an extraordinary marketplace um, and because they became a sort of famous as a trade entrepot and that I think that was part of why I can't prove this uh, but it is my theory my instinct is that that is partly why they were able to rise over other city-states even those that had been more powerful than they were originally because they were growing so rich through this trade and that was possible because they were um, an island a little bit like Crete well in the in the ancient Mediterranean you know grew so powerful because they they ruled the seas. Okay. Uh, now, again, that was on a much bigger scale. The Mediterranean is much bigger uh, than, than the, the Valley of Mexico. But um, I, I, maybe some military historians would argue with me and say, no, the fact that they were an undoomed them. Uh, and perhaps I don't know enough about military history, but I think that their island position actually is them. See, and I wasn't even thinking militarily. I was thinking politically. Almost that they were separate. They were separated from everyone. Right. I think that actually might have helped them too. They thought of themselves as separate, and the people that conquered thought of themselves thought of them as somewhat separate, as sort of uh, on the center of the world. I mean, I, sometimes I, when I'm studying, I almost think of the Wizard of Oz, and I don't mean that it was a fantasy land, but this whole idea that in the very heart of something, surrounded by some sort of cushion, will be a great power, and that's in effect what they had. But these are unanswerable questions, and you may well be right. Uh, who knows, right? I just, I, that's a bit like in Britain then, really, because we were an island, right. and that's why we kind of got away with things that we shouldn't have got away with because we were an island. I kind of and think so, so, too. Right, right, right. That's not why. You, the, the English, <laughs> you all get away with things you shouldn't be allowed to get away with because of the accent. Your accent, all, <laughs> and we let you do this. Well, there's some argument that Elizabethans would have sound. There is a place in America where you can hear what Elizabethans sounded like because their accent hasn't changed that much. 
Really? So even if it's not, yeah. Oh, I don't know though, but you are, you are, you're the English, you're, not you're Buffalo. the, Eng- well, some settlers are the English religious radical, so. Right, right. right. <laughs> that sounded like you. You don't know that, Brian. I, I am not going to acknowledge that one with all the religious insanity going on in this country now. <laughs> you guys got out of your system uh, 500 years ago. We're just catching up. We're just getting there. That's what I always say is that it's because you're a young country. It's because um, you, um, you know, we look back at some of the arguments that are taking place in America are arguments that we already had. So, t- so it's it's quite it's quite it's like it's quite strange and scary at the same time. Yes, yes, it is scary at times. I agree. Right. It's scary because we've become the most dominant and powerful country in the world. Right. And yet we're behaving so badly among ourselves, right? And right. behaving 500 years behind a lot of the world. Right, right, right. But let's get happy again because we're hitting almost at that right. point. So I'm going to go to the rapid fire questions. There are no wrong answers to these random questions unless you get one okay. wrong. And I'll tell you <laughs> wrong. Question number one. Lauren, plug your ears. Wow. Pluto, Brian, planet. Brian, this question. I will say no, planet, not a bit. <laughs> question number two. <laughs> question number two. The Mayan calendars. More impressive to you, the fact that they had the two calendars, or more impressive that the Aztecs actually somehow had a 365-day agricultural calendar? Well, I guess... I'm a kind of practical girl, kind of realistic, and I think I really love the, that the, they followed on. Actually, both Aztecs and the Mayas did both, but they emphasized different ones, as you have said. I, I think I really love um, th- that the Aztecs were deeply interested in the calendar that actually followed the sun and, um, and the planets, and that they kept time largely by that. But they, too, like the Mesoamerican ceremonial calendar that the Mayas loved, you know, the 260-day one. Um, it's kind of like we have both, uh, you know, the days of the week named for the Norse gods, but we also have a solar calendar going that really is based on scientific uh, um, observation. And we just keep track of both of them in our heads all the time, and we're fine with that. And Mesoamericans did the same thing. Uh, but I guess if I had to choose one or the other, I'm more impressed by people who track the sun. <laughs> Rutgers yes. football. Are they going to have a good program again? I hope so. My Next poor random question. Fingers random. crossed. Let's say yes. I mean, I... Like I said, I was there for the International Bowl, um, which, of course, was, you know, Ray Rice, so we shouldn't talk about that. But Jeremy Ito, the most impressive field goals I've ever seen in my life in Toronto, oh. in the uh, oh. in the Sky Dome. It was the Sky Dome. And phenomenal game, and I'll never forget it. So but I've so been a Rutgers we. fan ever okay. since. My younger brother always was a Rutgers fan and drove me to the game. And I've been a fan ever since. And, you know, I, I want a good team. So putting a word there. Next question. Real simple. Will you promise to come back on the show at some point? Because I got a billion more questions. I will indeed. Thank you, Brian. Greg, final of the rapid-fire questions. <laughs> more insulting version of the Aztecs. Mel Gibson or Indiana Jones? That's a tough one, but I guess Absolutely. I'll say Indiana and Jones. The... Well, it's actually, he, he, he didn't explicitly uh, have a story about them. But oh, wow, I thought you were going to go Mel Gibson. But that's, no, you're right. I mean, the Indiana Jones one's pretty bad. Aztec motifs oh, in talking yes. about other brown people, right? Oh, yes. 
Yeah, it was pretty obvious that that's who they were trying to claim they were. Anyway, well, this has been a lot of fun, folks. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I read this. And Lauren, before we say goodnight, um, any final words? Any questions? Um, You want a beggar to come back on, too? Because I will again. Yes, please do come back on. It's been fascinating. Will do, and thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful night. You too. You too. Okay. Bye. Okay, Lauren, what did you think? That was amazing. I mean, it's been, oh gosh, um, over 20 years since I learned about the Aztecs in school. And all I can remember is the, um, the, um, the story about the conquistadors sinking their ships by trying to take all the Aztec gold. I think I did a really and good the, job. Uh, the Aztec, and the Aztecs just looking at them like, you're a bunch of losers. <laughs> I am so proud of myself for not busting into a chorus of Conquistador by Procol Harum. Well, I really wanted to. I think you don't want to be sued. That's no, not- that's true. But Lauren, I um, I love the old adage, they say, never meet your heroes because you'll be disappointed. Well, that is not the case with Dr. Townsend because, oh my God. She, she was, was even amazing. More charming she was so sweet. And, and wonderful it was so kind of her to congratulate me on my graduation tomorrow. than I ever could oh, have dreamed. Yeah, you academics, you all got to stick together, don't you? Oh, I don't know if I'd call myself an academic, but yeah. I'm going to call myself ready to wrap up the show. What do you think? So, from the lovely little Billy Van and, of course, the wonderful Cleopatra, and all the way from Rutgers University, Dr. Camilla Townsend, this is Brian in Buffalo, and with me as always... Is Lauren from Sonsi, who's graduating tomorrow. Hooray! No more school! And... School's out forever. Forever! Good night. Good night. And the Aztecs just looking at them like you're a bunch of losers. <laughs>